Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through past stories from amazing people. We're well into our first season and want to thank you for all of the support thus far. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have remarkable stories, stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoy today's episode and look forward to you joining us each week. Without further ado, let's get started. Today, I'm joined by Dennis Turner. Dennis, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sean. I appreciate it. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, Now, you're an educator, writer, music composer. Uh, You do quite a bit. So look forward to hearing more about your journey. Awesome. Very excited to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. And I love to just share. Excellent. Well, I like to start at the beginning. (laughs) We all have a beginning. And uh, I want to go kind of end to end. So I want to make sure we end up where you are today and some of the things that you're sharing with the world. But uh, if we go way back to the beginning, let's hear more about like, where are you born? Where are you from? What's family life? Uh, Let's get it started. Oh, wow. Okay. I am from a small town in Mississippi called Tunica. Tunica, Mississippi. When I was born, my family lived on a place called Sugar Ditch. It was known as the poorest place in America, but that was years later. I was born in 1973, and it was a very, very, very poor place. We moved from Sugar Ditch when I was about, uh, I think, I guess I was around five, six months old. These are stories, you know, my, my mom related to me. There's also records that when my parents purchased a uh, low-income housing in a small subdivision called White Oak, that was around about five months later after I was born. But when I was born, we lived on Sugar Ditch. I was the 12th, as my mom would say, the 12th living child. But Mm. she she had three other kids to pass away, either Mm. by stillborn or miscarriage. So she said, you were, you're my 12th living child, but my 15th child. Mm, okay. Uh, so it was a very um, interesting way that my life began. My mom would tell me stories about the beginning. And she would tell me how she was a diabetic and how she was somewhat ill and had so many children that um, the doctor told her that I wouldn't be born. I would probably be a miscarriage. Wow. And so she tells me the story about how she prayed over my womb and prayed for me. And nine months later, once I was here, she said, the doctor said, this is the healthiest child you've had. And so she talked about that. And she always wanted to let me know that it was a blessing. You know, my being here was just it was not under normal circumstances. She was 42 years of age. Um, she was, like I said, a diabetic. And my dad was, he was an older gentleman. Uh, it's kind of what they did back then, especially in Mississippi. But back then, you know, he was 69 when I was born. And so my start was pretty mm, interesting. Right. 
before we get more into the personal story, just want to you know revisit the the geography so I have a good sense. I don't know much about you know this you know all the various cities. My, my dad was actually born in Macomb. I think that's probably four four and a half hours south of uh, yes yes Tunica. That's at the bottom. <laughs> yeah yeah, closer to uh, Louisiana, but Tunica is near Memphis, right? Memphis, Tennessee, correct? It's okay, a- yeah. I lived in Millington for about, uh, I don't know, about a little under a year when I was in the military. So I know a little oh. bit about the area, um, but I've never been to Tunica. And so so these are, when you hear uh, some of these neighborhoods like uh, you know Sugar Ditch and White Oak, are these neighborhoods within Tunica? How should I think about that? Yes. Now, Sugar Ditch was not a neighborhood name. It's just a name that someone... <laughs> yeah, it was some sort of name that wasn't meant to be, uh, uh, how could I say it? <laughs> it wasn't actually meant to be a name per se, but more of a, uh, yeah. It was, it was it kind of like a derogatory thing where it kind of yeah. got this label over time, uh, even though that wasn't the yes. name of the neighborhood. Yes. Yeah. Because let me tell you why. Okay. It was rows of wooden old shack houses. Mm-hmm. No indoor plumbing, nor indoor bathrooms. And so it was a ditch, a sewer ditch, ran on the backside of most of those houses. And by you not having indoor plumbing, people used pots, pails, buckets, and they would they would dump into the ditch. Mm. Hence sugar ditch connotation, which was you know, oxymoron, I guess, you know, what they were trying to info, but it was not a, a great place. So that's that's basically where I got my start. Um, it's why I wrote the book, The Boy from the Ditch. It was a my my family lived there a lot longer than I did, of course, by me being the last one. Five months later, my dad and my mom was able to get what they call low income housing. They were building in the 70s in, in Mississippi that was funded by a grant. A grant. They were able to get um, a house. And that's up to me. Yeah, no, thank you. And then help me understand the difference. Who owned the house uh, where you were born in, in Sugar Ditch? And then who owned the house or the houses or, you know, whatever in White Oak? Like, where, you know, like, do you have landlords? Did you guys end up purchasing White Oak? Were you renting there? How, who, who, was, who was the landlord in all of this? No, they were landlords to Sugar Ditch. That, hence the big scandal. Mm. There were landlords. On Sugar Ditch, we were renting, uh, and this is once again. I'm so young. This is all information gathered later in life when I ask questions. But there was a landlord in, for all the Sugar Ditch homes, and they call them slum lords now. Pretty much what mm-hmm. it was back then. Once we made the transition to the low income housing, that was to purchase. So. Okay. My mom and dad was actually became homeowners. And so after five months of dealing with, you know, coming from the hospital to sugar dish, I mean, in my in my book, I, I highlight different stories that happened that was told to me by my mom. One of them was I'll give you that one. <laughs> OK. You know, back then, sometimes economically, you you you're not able to attain all the things that you need. So they will, they will buy things that could be used in more than one capacity. One, hence, Crisco oil. 
<laughs> okay, break it down. It was it was known for cooking, but they also would use it to moisturize skin. Hmm. So that's what my mom did. However, in those shacks, holes in floors and walls, a rat was able to get in and bit my mom. And, and it bit her and she she bled uh, from the bite. Of course, had to be treated. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the experience that they've had living there to the to the point where something had to be done. Yeah, like we got to do something here. Yeah, something has to happen. Yeah, has to happen. So and so that program helped them um, buy that house. Now, does is this end up being the house you grew up in, or were you there just for a period of time uh, once you got to White Oak? Uh, for the most part, I spent fifteen years there. We we okay. moved uh, out of the state of Mississippi, out of the county of Tunica, until I was about fifteen. But so. Yeah, from 15 years of my life, you know, childhood, adolescenthood. That was, How was it like growing up in that community? It was interesting. Um, it was a pretty much a predominantly African-American community. There was, there was different things we experienced there. I remember when I was a little boy, there was, a, uh, there was some talk in the neighborhood about something that happened that night. Uh, I was not... You know, I was young, so I didn't know what what happened. But right, right. But I also had an older sister. Having fifteen, I mean, you know, twelve kids and fifteen, I should say, because three. Actually, I'm four, so she lost three and then had a had a stillborn. But so being the youngest of sixteen, my mom, the oldest, she was, you know, she was grown. So her and her husband had got into that same neighborhood, but they were renting. They were, they were, I, I think they were renting, not buying. But getting back to that story, we found a charred, burned, um, wooden cross. Wow. Yeah. And, and so. Where, no, no, describe, where is this at? This is like in someone's yard, in an alley, in a building. Where is this at? It was a vacant lot beside the house my sister was renting, which was one street uh, before our street, when you came into the neighborhood, she stayed on the first street. Then there was a second street. We stayed on that street. Gotcha. Now, this is late 70s at this point. This is this is late 70s. I'm probably about four or five, somewhere up in there. OK. And, you know, we out playing and we saw it, but we, we heard the talk and we once we reported to my sister, I think she decided to to, to tell her kids because she had kids as well. One was my age why and you know what this was and what it represented and to be honest it was a it was a cross that was burned by some white guys uh i don't know whether they clansmen or not i wasn't i didn't see it i didn't i didn't right witness it but i just saw the remnants of of a burnt cross and so my sister explained to me what that was and, and given the the atmosphere back then you know there was a Affluent. It was pretty predominantly African American community. It was not far fetched for something like that to happen. Hmm. That's a memory from the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Be- before we we move off of that, um, I'm not asking you to <laughs> kind of speak on the the entire community. Um, however, when I talk to people across the country, 
um, you know, on the West Coast, on the East Coast, uh, a lot of folks don't really have an experience of what it's like growing up in Mississippi. You know, there's a lot of stereotypes. There's, there's all sorts of things. So I guess I'll take this uh, into two directions. First, you know, what, what's a stereotype that people, you know, might be believing about living in Mississippi where you're like, no, nah, that's not it. That's not how we do it. Well, it's funny you should ask that because I'm married and my wife is from Miami, Florida. Okay. Okay. We we got we got together in 2008, and my wife still had she still believes some of the stereotypes that that was portrayed. One mm-hmm. of them, you know, a lot of a lot of the things that happened back then were still going on in Mississippi. You know, there's a lot of um, racial tension still going on in Mississippi. You know, and I, I think. You know, given the state of the country and what we are experiencing now, Mississippi is no different from a lot of other places in in the uh, in the country. There's time where they've made strides, they've made uh, leap, you know, in leaps and bounds, and then there's some there's a few instances where it's still a struggle. But you know, and I'll come back. But the thing is, I I I grew up in moved away, went to college, and I ended up moving back to Mississippi for um, at least 10, 15 years. Uh, came back in 03, and I didn't move away again until 2018. And so that's about about 15 years. Yep. You know, I lived there, purchased a home there, and it's definitely not the same place. They have definitely grown a lot, but few instances where you still see the struggle. Yeah. Well, when we talk about that struggle and I guess more broadly, this is kind of my second point to kind of uh, dig deeper with someone who has firsthand knowledge. Why do you think that tension, uh, not, you know, not generally, but in the community that you grew up, why do you think that tension was was not necessarily there, but so hard to kind of undo on both sides? Even, um, you know, like why, you know, you, you you're five ish years old, um, you know, growing up, you see this chart cross. You don't necessarily know who did it. But, you know, there, there's these tensions that you're talking about. And why do you think the those types of things are so hard to address? Like everybody knows who's in the community, <laughs> right? You see people in the grocery store, you 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 know, you see people at work. Why do you think it's so hard to tackle this? Um, I think there's a number of there's a number of reasons. You have to understand in, in Mississippi, you know, this stuff is taught, you know, being racist and biased or want to maintain a segregated society. Uh, it's taught. Mm-hmm. And it's based on the fact that people are are different. They use that difference as a, a, a deterrent, you know, like uh, or a booster, I should say, to say, um, see, this is why, because they are not the same as us. And then they they turn it and they teach it to their kids as if the difference is actually the problem. You know, being also, you know, uneducated, you know, when you're ignorant or you're uneducated, it's easy to believe anything. And and so I think long as we have that in society, which is and I'm a Christian, so you know I still believe everything is spiritual warfare. You know, when you, but when you have that, 
The undertone is the spiritual warfare, but when you have that on top of it, you, you're going to always, to me, experience this. And it goes on in in different places. I've lived in several states <laughs> since mm-hmm. I did, and all throughout the South, from Texas to Florida to Georgia to now North Carolina. And I've seen the same thing I've seen in Mississippi, and I've experienced, you know, some great times in Mississippi. And so it's not it's not a regional or one particular place for me. It's 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 a it's pockets all over the country to where people possess the same mentality uh, when it comes to, to to dealing with race. Yeah. When you're talking about kind of it being taught in education, um, I mean, obviously that happens in the home and potentially in, in unfortunately, in uh, classroom settings as well. I want to talk about in your elementary school days, uh, like what was the structure? Was it, you know, were the schools segregated? What was the kind of environment at school? Oh, man, it was really segregated. When I grew up, I understood later is public funds was being used to fund a what they call a private institution, which was basically whites only at that time. So the the black school was the county school, public funded school from taxes. The white school was labeled as a private school, but it was funded by the county. So it was segregation. If we had any whites that went to the school that we went to, they were very, very, very poor white, very poor. And so it was definitely segregated. I'm sorry. I'm trying to remember. The, the second part is uh, just the environment, right? Like everybody having fun. Is there bullying? Like, like what's the what's the vibe at the school? Oh boy, Whew. it was. How can I say this? No, there was a lot of bullying going on. Mm. I experienced it firsthand myself. Oh, I, really? Oh yeah. I tell in my book. I, I really describe adamantly. I was. You know, the experience that I, it was horrific. Third grade, it started third grade. You had kids that were retained. They were not able to move on because of academics. And instead of having a kind of a program for them, they just retained them. And so what, what that would do, it would have kids that were supposed to be in sixth and seventh grade down with third and fourth graders. Wait, sixth, seventh graders in school with third graders age of six or seven graders but they were in third academically they were kind of and so socially they had i guess it was that a nine-year-old and a and a 12-year-old in the same classroom that's correct and and that is chaos at any level because what you're what you're doing now is you're you're exposing the younger kids to an element that they are not they're not used to and they they haven't been introduced to yet. And so this these it was a family. They would a family and a couple of their friends, they would beat beat students up. They would have them uh watching when the teacher stepped out of the room, watching for the teacher while they were sexually harassing girls, whether if it's what? Yes. They Oh my gosh. They were sexually harassing girls and uh Actually, more than harassment, they were abusing and raping them. And they would make the class lay their head down. So while two over there with the girl, 
you had the other two walking around the class making sure that you didn't raise your head up because if you did, then they would all beat you. And the thing about it is you would hear the girl talking and or screaming and saying like, no, or, you know, don't do that. Or you, you would hear the, the verbiage. And so you know what was going on. Mm. It was pretty bad. Now, these are students or these are these are students. These and are then and where is the, the teacher, the vice principal, all that in this? Yeah. As an educator now, hindsight, I'm looking back. Someone that has studied administration and I'm looking back and I'm, I can <laughs> I'm counting. They were not on their J.O.B. Oh, yeah, exactly. I'm counting all the violations and fireable offenses and charges could be brought against educators because there's no way a teacher should leave the room and leave a whole class of third graders unsupervised for the, for moments of times in order for those things to have to happen, you have to be gone at least five, 10, 15 minutes for someone to have a girl in the corner, you know, declothe her underwear and stuff and do things. And you can't tell me you stepped out for 30 seconds that it doesn't happen in 30 seconds. And so, right. you know, it, it was, it was heartening for me. I, I tell people all the time, I think I probably missed the whole third grade. I was so terrified. And, you know, I'm a big guy now, but I was not a big kid. And so mm-hmm. I was pretty, pretty afraid. I didn't even want to tell my siblings because in my little young mind, if they go and beat them up or whatever, I still had to go back to class with those kids and my sister and brother wouldn't be there. And I just feared what would happen to me. Finally, um, one student got enough courage and shared it with her, her mom. And that's when, you know, the school became involved and they were trying to, you know, fix it. You know how they do with administration. But um, so the, the sheriff ended up coming out and, you know, he talked with the class and he basically said that if this kid even threatens, you know, even make a verbal threat, let them know he would be sent off to what they call back then. They used to, they named it reform school, but it was really mm-hmm. juvenile detention center. In my opinion, I think that, you know, that was not the way to go. I think at that point, the kids should have been removed immediately. Absolutely. So the sheriff gets down and, and at least kind of stabilize things. But I mean, you guys are still traumatized, right? And yeah, uh, yeah. I was in fourth grade by this time. So I, like I okay. said, I tell people all the time, I don't remember nothing from third grade. I don't think I learned anything. I was too terrified. If I wasn't terrified, I was too busy lying to my mother saying I'm sick because I didn't want to go to school. Wow. So, What's the name of the school? It was called Rosa Fort. Okay. It's in Tunica, Mississippi. Now, give me the visual. So, you know, folks who are listening, I always, you know, is this a tiny little school? Is this a big school? Is it like, what's the construction? Like you walking in the doors, carrying this emotional weight on your shoulders. Visibly, what does this school look like? It looks like a regular school in a, a regular town. It's it's not a small school because it, it has to house the whole entire county minus the whites. But it's a predominantly black county. So, yeah, if you you have you may have in the elementary school you, you may have uh, eight hundred kids or seven hundred kids in there, mm-hmm. so it was it was a a normal size school. It was like I said, predominantly African American. The thing about it is, 
to me, I think that it was such a thinking about it because of the divide with the uh, whites and the black. The blacks at that time probably didn't want to let things like this, you know, really get out because they didn't want maybe, you know, the whites saying, well, see, look, you guys can't even run the school. So we right. make some changes and take over. But, you know, you're talking about innocent little kids here. Yeah, you got to take responsibility, right? Um, I mean, I get on one hand why folks might have that mentality. At the same time, there's also, um, you know, obviously things probably going on in those, you know, what, what they used to call in my school, the bad kids, what was going on at their houses that was right. even giving them the mindset to even be predisposed this way. But at some point, yeah, it's the responsibility of those administrators and teachers to, to handle that and protect the children. Were the, the teachers and, um, you know, most of the educators at this particular school black? Yes. Okay. And uh, yeah, so so the tension is like, we got to handle it in house, but, you know, now they're scarring the, the, young third, fourth grade dentist uh, during the process. <laughs> yeah. And the thing about it, most of them, you had some that lived there, but you had a lot of them that were, they were always, always imported from Memphis. Mm. Like teachers, they wouldn't live there. They were, they were driving in uh, from yeah. another county. Uh, uh, okay. So they weren't even really connected to the community at that level. Not all of them. You had, you had, you had some, I would say, I would say half the school, were not from there. They did not live there. Half the teachers or half the students? Half, half, half the teachers. I'm sorry. Okay. So they were, yeah. I mean, this happens in policing as well, right? Where you got folks who aren't deeply connected to their community because they police in community A, but they live in community B. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So they, they're going to deal with them differently. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. So, so as you're growing up, so you're, you know, third grade to middle school, what have you. You know, you mentioned that your your mother was a diabetic. Did that ever resurface during the uh, do your childhood, or she had a good handle on that? Oh no, no, no! It, it it probably from the time I was born to till about fifteen years of age, it was a downward slope. Oh, it was always top of mind. There was always part of how you guys had to think about living. Right. You know, I said a lot. People doesn't didn't understand. Some people uh, doesn't understand the importance of knowledge. You know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, knowledge is power. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, even today it's a topic, healthcare. But, um, you know, to me, I think my mom didn't have the knowledge how to deal with her, you know, illnesses, how to treat, how to treat it, what she should be doing so she can have a, you know, a fulfilled life versus yeah. with it. And so it was always an issue. My dad died when I was three, so he wasn't around to experience any of that. Um, mm -hmm. And, I, and I, I really believe that that's when the dynamics of the house changed. Um, mm. Passed away. I had older brothers, but, you know, they were... Yeah, it's a different dynamic. Yeah. They were kind of into their own thing and trying to go their own way. And it was my mom trying to hold the house together. It was, it was a struggle. It was a struggle. I watched my older siblings experience life and do things and kind of taught me and by their experience, like, 
things not to do or things you want to avoid. You know, I had an older brother. He he developed a drinking problem very early. I remember get my mom getting called knocks on the door because we didn't have a phone, but she would get a call out or summoned saying your son is in this car with the car running intoxicated, passed out, or or he would come in in the middle of the night and he's bloody, beat up, mm. or even times where he comes in and he's intoxicated, he's trying to cook and almost set the higher house of fire. Uh, you know, as a story I, I, implement, I implemented in one of my plays based on something true. He was intoxicated and he came home and tried to do what he usually do and find something to eat. End up trying to fry some chicken. Mm-hmm. You know, some people batter chicken with flour, you know how some people do it. And right. he was battering the chicken with washing pot. Oh my goodness. <laughs> he was faded. Yeah, man. So, you know, I, I've, I've experienced all these things and I'm I'm a kid and I'm growing up and I'm seeing this and I'm like, this is what drinking does. I'm like, I want no part of it. I'm sorry. That just You're going to pass on that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, no, no, thank you. And so yeah. if it wasn't that, it was my sister, you know, wanting to, you know, move or advance, you know, wanted to grow up, you know, and yeah. I want to hear to mom. And so one particular time she went with a friend and went, you know, back then they used to call it hitchhiking. We're going to catch a ride up to town and we're going to do this or party. You know how the young kids are. She was a teenager at that time. And some guy picked her up, did not go to town, took her back towards the country, back in the woods. And I think he planned to have his way and do whatever he was going to do. But her and her friend, basically, my sister was an athlete. So they jumped out the car and and started running. Wow. The story is my sister said she was running and she fell. When she fell, she heard pow, pow, two shots. Said she, it was something went over her head. And so she got up and continued to run and they ran to a house. The shots, uh, gunshots or something else? Gunshots. So he, so he was shooting at them. He was shooting at them, yes. Wow. The, um, the house that they got to was a white, you know, they were white people and they saw them frantic and running and, and they told them what was happening. So the white people told them to go inside and the white, the woman told her son, you know, to bring her shotgun. And so he drove around and he had this story that, you know, have you seen these girls? They just tried to rob me and da, da, da. And so uh, my sister said, Oh, he tried to flip it on him. Right. Yeah, it was like we hadn't seen him, but we want you to get off our property now. And she cocked that shotgun. So, of course, he left. They called the cops. Cops brought her home. And so we we got the story when she got home. And I think it kind of what they call scared straight her for a minute. But, uh, you know, only for a minute. (laughs) But those kind of experiences I wrote about him and and I did it in my play and and I, and I just wanted to depict it because it was based on real life. But uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And and so as I grew up, you know, there was I took less chances. I, I tended to follow my mom's counsel more so. And so yeah. you're getting more. Um, I mean, you, you get 
to learn from some of the you know wins and the mistakes of your your siblings uh, you know being being younger I wanted to switch over to um, just tying you said at, at 15 you moved uh, what was the reason that you moved out of White Oak and where'd you move to okay so uh, my mom ill and we couldn't find out what we didn't know what was wrong, but they had to transport her to Memphis, uh, which is- ah, so, that, so the healthcare, you really couldn't get what you needed in the- right, where you were living. Right, come to find out her kidneys failed. And so mm-hmm. she was gonna need dialysis and there's no facility at that time in Tunica that give dialysis. So she had to move to Memphis in order, cause you have to go about, I think she had, I think they started like three to four times a week, you had to go. And so she had to move there. And with that, we had to move. I was still a young. Like 15 at this point, right? My sister that's next to me had just graduated. So she was off to college. She was going to be the first one going off to college. She went to college in uh, Alabama. And so I was the youngest and I, so I moved with my mom and I still had a brother that, that, that um, was stayed at home. That was, you know, we still to this day don't know how to label. I, we don't know if it's autistic, you know, learning disabilities, you know, he has a speech impediment, you know, hands has a, you know, can't stretch out. So he was still at home as well. Hmm. So we moved from White Oak, which was started to turn a little bit, wasn't the greatest neighborhood, you know, elements, different elements coming in and, and moved to Memphis to an even worse neighborhood. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. When well, you move to the city and you're poor, you're more than likely will end up impoverished neighborhoods, which usually have a certain element of crime. And so we moved to North Memphis mm-hmm. and in a neighborhood called Douglas, Douglas Community in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. And that's where I experienced hearing gunshots every weekend, just about. We had a guy to get shot when we were gone once. We came home, police is all around our house with yellow tape. They wanted to know why we were there. We was like, we live here. They was like, oh, well, we need to inform you someone that was shot and died in your backyard. Mm. We've experienced... Uh, so, so wait, just how, how do they wrap that up? The police handle it, move the body, and then in the morning you just get up and go to school? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, that was on a Saturday, so the next morning was a Sunday. But okay, well, but it's just back to normal. What they did was, you know, and this is this is why I tell people all the time, you know, you don't believe in God. I mean, I don't know what your experience has been, but I I'm a firm believer because there's some things that has happened in my life that I know it was it was God's hand. One is the timing of that. Strategically, you know, every now and again we would go over my sister's house, you know, hang out, watch TV. That was that was the family social gathering. And so we we went over there that day and we we ended up staying to probably about twelve, you know, probably eleven or twelve that night before we came back. And so the time he got shot had to be eight, you know, so, you know. When it's kind of a blessing, though, that you guys probably weren't there. Right. So we don't know if the shooting happened in the yard. We don't know exactly. We just know he ran through our drive and collapsed and died in the backyard. 
Well, a body has to lay there for a minute. Once they pronounce him dead on the scene, they lay there for a minute. It's a crime scene. So they tape everything off. And and so, you know, hours passed. They finally removed the body before we got home. But the yellow tape was still there and the police were still on the scene. And so then we um, that's when we found out they they let they allowed us to, um, of course, go inside the house. And I may be a another hour or so all the lights was gone and they had taken the tape down and mm-hmm. yeah you know next day i saw my mom naming the well not the next day but they saw my mom naming the paper probably by next week saying you know you know about what happened they was like and he collapsed and died in the yard of you know my mom named there and i'm like wow this is that's some childhood experiences. I mean, it, it definitely teaches you to be resilient after you've gone through all of that. Now, you know, when you finish high school, you know, you go to college, you know, one or two key moments that really shaped that were pivotal for you to kind of say, all right, I've seen all of this growing up. I got some decisions to make and kind of, you know, what are a couple of the key moments that, you know, help mold and, and motivate you to kind of become the person you are today? Uh, well, my mom kept spiraling out as far as her health. Mm. Oh, I played basketball. I was a walk-on at the school. They started a basketball program when I was there. And um, of course, I I made the team. I played basketball when I was in high school. I just never played a season because, you know, I butted heads with the coach. Uh, He was a white guy. And I I can clearly say I thought it was so then, but I know for sure that I'm older and more mature was definitely he was racist Mm. and so I never really played much but you know I always made the team and then something would happen so play college basketball which afforded me an opportunity to travel the basketball team was not in a particular league at that time so we would have games all over the country we'd be flying to California we flew out to Oregon and you know uh state of Washington all this is from a school, a small school in Alabama. But um, I was in California and I called home because I was so excited. You know, I was like, we was leaving the airport. I got a chance to see the lady from Good Times. I was like, oh, man, that's the lady from Good Times, the mother. And I'm waving at her and she's looking at me strange, like waving. And I'm like, she just don't know. She's talking, she's waving at this little kid from Mississippi. You know, I'm in L.A. And. Isn't that transformative where like, you know, I mean, it sounds really simple, but it's like you just had to get on a plane and go see some different places. And it starts to just expand how you look at the world. It really did. It's called and it is exposure is key to it with education. It, it, it runs hand in hand. When you expose the kid, educating them, it opens their mind. Once again, it's my first time on a plane. It's my first. And so I call home and my mom is in the hospital and mm. them tells me that, oh yeah, they, they had to remove one of her legs. And so when I talked to her, her spirits were really, really broken. And so, you know, she felt like she was defeated, you know, and, and I mm-hmm. encouraged her, you know, and tell her to hold on. My dream was, you got to understand within this process, when we moved to Memphis, my mom left the house in care of my brother that used to be intoxicated a lot instead of one of my other brothers. 
And he basically abandoned the house and mm. tell us. And so my mom, before she knew it, she was being foreclosed and didn't have time to react. And so she lost her home. Um, she always, she wanted to keep it because she told me that was something her and my dad had decided that they wanted to always have a home for the kids. And that broke her spirits. But, you know, this to me was even more so. On the heels of that, now she get her leg amputated. Mm-hmm. I'm like, my whole goal is, to, hey, I want to go to, I'm going to college. I want to get an education. I want to do better. I want to buy you a home again. She told me then, she said, I don't want you to do that for me. She said, I want you to go to school. I want you to better yourself and buy a home and, and do great things for you. And um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, one breath I'm thinking, and she's giving up, but at the same time, she's trying to tell me, no, live your life. And so the next next year or two, she had to get the second leg amputated that and that just that just really did it. I was able to walk. Uh, even though I had another class, uh, they didn't do a fall graduation. So they said, listen, you got one more class to do, but we'll let you walk now. And then, but you won't get your degree until after, you know, when you finish in the fall, finish the class. And so she got wind that I had, you know, she was ill that I had finished. And I walked in more May, 97. Mm-hmm. She died in August 97. Wow. The thing was for me is, what did I do now? Where, where did I go? And I had a long talk with God, you know, and, you know, at that point, I was really inspired to keep moving to be a success, even if it was just for my mom's memory. And so I finished school, went straight into graduate school about a year and a half later, and I finished my master's. And for a long time, I was wondering, was I ever going to even finish school? Because you have to understand the education system in Tunica did not prepare you for college at that time. Oh, I can imagine. With all the things going on there, then if you had a teacher that wasn't teaching or did not know how to teach, then that added to the problem. Needless to say, when I got to Memphis, I was behind academically. That's some things I didn't say. Put it in my book. I had a brother that was got on drugs. He started selling them first, then he started using them. Hmm. Then after that, they came to kill him. They thought I was him. They um, had guns. All this is in Memphis now. So me going away to college, I wanted to put that life behind me. But I was behind. But I had a counselor that was in high school that helped me. And what she did was she said, we're going to get you out of high school. And they were able to rearrange some classes and make sure that I got this and, you know, just to make sure I graduated. And I, I graduated. I tell people all the time I graduated with a 1.97 hmm. high school, as they will say, barely made it. Skin of the teeth. Skin of the teeth. College, it was a struggle. First Half of my first year classes that didn't count towards graduation because they're almost like remedial courses trying to catch me up. Mm-hmm. But I never gave up. I, I stayed in there. I mean, I had buddies that would joke me like, man, you still in freshman comp and you, I'm three years in. 
and I'm still taking freshman comp, you know, but it, you know, I would tell them I, I'm not giving up. It, it was something I had to, to get over. And I did. I never quit. And I ended up, matter of fact, I ended up graduating before one of them, you know, and he, he was shocked. Right. Like a 2.3. And I said, oh, that's better from high school. They was like, and so my, I had college professors like, what are you going to do, Turner? And I'm like, I'm going to graduate school. And they looking at each other like, yeah, all right. Like, you're not great. <laughs> And I went to graduate school. <laughs> and when I graduated from graduate school, I graduated with a 3.1. And I remember the day when I came back, I had my degree in hand and I went to see my college professors over in uh, at Oakwood. And one of them said to me, he said, I'm going to be honest with you. We didn't think you would make it. And wow. I said, wow, I'm glad you never said it to my face. But I said, but yeah. And so... I started working towards my doctorate and uh, and I kind of I put it on pause when I got about halfway and I wrote my story. And uh, after I wrote my story and started doing some signings, you know, I got into music. I've always was into music, but I mean, got into music as in I started writing my mm -hmm. started writing my own music and writing songs. So I got with a good friend, someone I met. That is a great producer. He's matter of fact, he's one of the guys that does a lot of the uh, mixing and, and behind the scenes work on a lot of gospel artists that's in the industry. And we together, we uh, we've done two albums, you know, and it's just my way of just trying to encourage. I wrote my story that others may draw strength and that they may be inspired to keep moving. It doesn't matter how you start. It always depends on how you finish. Because a race is not given to to the person just because they're the fastest. Hence, now I'm getting into why I named my company Turtle Nation. Yeah. Based on a motivational talk that I had. And it's about this turtle and the rabbit. And isn't the rabbit did not lose, the turtle did not win the race because he was faster than the rabbit. Uh, we all know that the rabbit is still much faster than his determination of never quitting, never giving up. And, mm -hmm. of course, a little bit of the arrogancy of the of the rabbit of taking a, a nap. But the turtle kept going and he won the race. And I mm -hmm. all the time we need to become a nation of turtle. And that's why I came over Turtle Nation, because it means that we should never give up on ourselves and our dreams. And that long God give us breath in our bodies and a mind that we are to always keep striving and pushing and moving forward. Despite what happens, you know, you're going to have some setbacks. You're going to have some letdowns. You're going to have some disappointments. But we have to keep striving and moving forward. I tell I end my story by talking about my marriage. Uh, one thing men we don't talk enough about is our emotions. Mm -hmm. I have a father after three, so I had to feel my way through life and when it comes to as a man. One thing I tell people, I said, we have feelings too. And the feeling and the sense of loneliness with my mom gone and, and the family not really being together, I wanted to create a family of my own and I rushed the process. Mm. Rush the process and you don't take your time. You always putting yourself in a bad situation to where things will happen. And I did. And I married something that everything in me said, don't do this. 
but I wanted to a family. The idealism. You wanted yeah. the idea so yeah. much. I, and, and exactly. And so it turned out to be a very bad situation for me. But I am the kind of guy that, you know, like you said earlier, I'm resilient when it comes to problems and issues. I've seen so many and I, I know and I believe in a God that doesn't want trouble to last always. That There's always a solution. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And so I was able to, you know, I had to get a divorce and start over again. This time I said, well, I'm going to take my time. This time I'm like, I'm going to move when I feel, feel the urge to move, when I feel the spirit is talking. And I've been happily married now for 11 years. I have a total of three kids. My first kid with the first wife, I have full custody. That's how bad the situation was. Um, mm. Full custody now. He is he is growing and learning and uh, maturing. Uh, and you know, it's been a journey, and I'm still still moving. And, yeah. And anytime I can enlighten or help someone else or encourage someone else along the way, I am so willing and ready. And so, hence why I wrote my story. We did a play based on my book. Okay. Some of the music in my play is written by me. And, you know, it was probably great to see that come into life, right? It was. It was. We performed it at actually two colleges. One was my alma mater, Oakwood University, formerly Oakwood College. Uh, the second one, we, we performed it at a, at a school called Miles College in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. And we then we did a couple of shows uh, in Memphis at a at a theater center, uh, and then we performed it at a at a, at a at a big church in Houston, Texas. And so you know it was very emotional, you know, mm. because it, a lot of times those things can be both to your point inspiring to the audience, but it's also therapeutic for you, right? It's your story. Yeah, it was. You got to understand, writing the book was therapeutic. Mm -hmm. There was times when my wife had to come into the room and, and calm, try to calm me. I would get so emotional re 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 recounting the events that I had to stop typing because I couldn't see before the tears that wow. the wells of my eyes and in the emotion that it brought back, it it almost took me there, like I was back in that place. And mm -hmm. you know, that's when she knew. She said, "Wow." She said, "This is this is powerful." And you got to share it, right? Yeah. And she kept telling me, "You have to share the story." I was a lady. I did a book signing. It was a lady at the book signing that, um, as I was speaking. And when I got towards the end, she, I mean, just was very emotional. She was overcome with tears and she was crying profusely to the point I had to stop and I had mm -hmm. to dress because people was trying to console her. But then, and I, and I, when I, when I got to her and I, and I asked, I said, you mind me asking, you know, what brought this on or what is going on? And she, she basically said that there were some things she had experienced in her family. And she said, 
I've been wanting to tell my story to get it out, she said. But her folks came and threatened her. her parents said, if you divulge this in a book or anything, we will disown you and never speak to you again. Mm. And she was torn with that because she she had this strong sense of urgency to get that story out. And I prayed with her, but I, I gave her counsel. And I, and I just basically said that, you know, hey, listen, my family didn't receive this well. A lot of them said things, uh, they were upset. They, they you know, because I, I shared some things that happened along the way in, in my story. And I told her, I said, you can never, you can never feel bad about being on the side of right. Mm-hmm. Something happened to you and you want to share it, and you feel a strong sense of urgency that someone else will gain strength from your story because it's your story, because it happened to you. I said, you must share it, irregardless to how people are gonna feel, how they take it. And she told me that day, she said, I gained strength today. After it was all over, she said, I've gained strength now to move forward with what I plan to do. I wish I'd have kept in touch with her to kind of see how things materialized. But at that time, I was I was here and there speaking. You know, I was here one moment in this state the next moment. So I was kind of moving kind of quickly. I, I, I was not able to keep up with, you know, in the right. that I, I would meet. But, but you touched that person and, and you know, it's like when you see that connection, number one, like you said, it's therapeutic. It gives you strength to keep pushing forward on your journey, but also you see it in real time. You see the payoff, right? Um, And it's it's really magical. And, you know, as we're wrapping up, one of the things you said that it just kind of brings it full circle, you know, the boy from the ditch. And uh, even, you know, through all the things you went through, you stayed resilient. And your professor said, we didn't think you were going to make it. I mean, I almost think, you know, for a lot of folks growing up in less than ideal scenarios and situations, that's the statement that the world makes to them. You know, we didn't think you were going to make it. And uh, you pushed through and and now you're building, uh, you know, the turtle nation, right? You're helping other folks kind of see what it takes to push through. And it's just a fantastic and inspirational story. Yes, that is definitely my, my goal is that that I try to inspire the world. Fantastic. Well, it's a pleasure talking to Dennis Turner today, educator, writer, music composer, and all-around inspiration. For everyone joining us today, I hope you enjoyed yourself. Uh, If you have any comments or suggestions, as usual, please reach out at hello at truevoice.com. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.